Good afternoon, you're listening to 90.7 FM, KALX. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Grox. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, sex, popcorn, and hormones. I'm Michael Fitzhugh. And joining us is our guest, Professor Patrick Michaels, to talk about his book, Meltdown. In addition, you can find out, why is hair curly? So stay tuned for all that, plus the world-famous question of the week, right here on Berkeley Rocks. I'm Franklin. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. And I'm Michael Fitzhugh. All right. so how's everyone doing? Doing well. Doing well. It's always a pleasure to have Mike on the uh, program, especially since he has the coolest name in radio, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I could barely dispute that. <laughs> Can I change my name to Mike Fitzhugh? Licensing fee, but yeah, sure. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so you actually have franchises with uh, other Mike Fitzhugh. You, you didn't put it under the Creative Commons license, huh? <laughs> no way. Are you kidding me? <laughs> there could be you only guys one, be you know. sharing me on BitTorrent before <laughs> you know it. <laughs> Okay, how about I'll just get your DNA sequence and put that on the web? I think I've already patented his, okay? Uh, <laughs> you beat me to it, huh? Oh, uh, well, you know. i got to get there before Microsoft does, so <laughs> that's my only goal. <laughs> uh, but in the meantime, we could all be worried about sex. You mean it's bad? Uh, well, apparently there's a great burden to having sex. Wow. Really? Uh, who would have thought? I thought it was actually a reward. But according to a group of researchers, epidemiologists, in fact, from the Centers for Disease Control, they say the estimates of diseased and illness caused by sexual behavior results in basically three times more premature death and disability in the U.S. compared to other wealthy countries. Man, that's it. I'm quitting. <laughs> so heart disease is actually linked to sex then? <laughs> and cancer? Well, I mean, there's a number of uh, sexually related diseases, especially among women. Diseases such as herpes and gonorrhea can lead, of course, to later incidences of either infertility or health problems later on. That's sad news. That totally changes my plans for the rest of the week. <laughs> <laughs> I guess if I had plans for the rest of the week, it would change it, but alas, I don't. You don't need to tell your wife. <laughs> I didn't even know I had a wife. Wow. I'm sure that's not good news to her. So. <laughs> Get with the program. There you go. Apparently, it's not surprising results, according to epidemiologist Ward Cates. He's president of the Family Health International. They're basically saying that the overall health costs of certain types of behaviors have just been underestimated, and this leads to ways of rethinking about what are the costs and benefits of having sex. What about the uh, health burdens of heavy petting? <laughs> I think no study's really been done on that quite yet, but mm. I think perhaps that could lead to uh, oily hair. <laughs> <laughs> I'll watch out for that. Yeah, which <laughs> the grease is back in. All right, and if anyone wants to know more about this, this was published in a uh, recent issue of a journal I didn't know existed called Sexually Transmitted Infections. <laughs>
All right, so here's some food for thought. Oh, more food. How about popcorn? Popcorn's good, yeah. You know how to make them a little bit bigger, fluffier, perhaps? Put more air in it. Actually, the opposite. Put less air into it. Really? Yes. So a study carried out by Paul Quinn of Kutztown University in Pennsylvania showed that by popping the popcorn in lower air pressure, they come out bigger and fluffier. Wow, that, this totally ruins my whole love of that scene where they fill the building with popcorn. <laughs> what, what movie oh, was that? Oh, that was Real Genius. Real Genius in Real Genius. A film based on Caltech, in fact. In real science. Yeah, real scientists with real projects <laughs> and real laser beams. <laughs> but it turns out you can actually get double the volume by popping them under like a vacuum. And in fact, you'll have fewer unpopped kernels. Wow, my mom is going to love this. It's going to change her lunch hours for the rest of her life. <laughs> okay, well, that makes sense. I mean, basically, there's less pressure keeping the uh, kernel contained. Right. So. so I guess the recommendation then is for people to take their Orville Redenbacher into space. Is that the idea? Yes. Or if you have a vacuum pump. (laughs) (laughs) I think people's vacuum pumps might be a little unclean for that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, anyway, so this is interesting stuff. It was reported in news at nature.com. It's always good to see nature uh, focusing on such weighty issues as popping popcorn. All right, good news for uh, chemists out there who are trying to compete with biologists. I don't do chemistry anymore. Uh, For those who are, though, they've now been able to mimic nature. Wow. Which I guess is something that all scientists want to do in some way. So apparently they've been able to create shape-shifting enzyme-type molecules. Is this with some sort of templated synthetic effect, I guess? Yeah, I guess so. In fact, what they've done is uh, they've tried to mimic the way enzymes work. Basically, the way that enzyme work is it recognizes a particular compound or molecule, binds to it, and then changes shape, and that causes some sort of chemical reaction or catalysis process to occur. Right. And a number of chemists have been interested in trying to create small molecules that can do exactly the same type of thing. This is what a group of researchers have done. They've created a molecule that can basically recognize certain target molecules, and in the process it changes its shape, and that causes two molecules to shift apart and causes fluorescence to occur. So using some sort of chemical bonding scheme to create a mold around your target, right? Right. And they're using this right now for recognition and tagging of certain compounds. So if it binds, then of course it lights up and you see this green fluorescent glow. Cool. Does this mean that I could trick molecules into bonding together to form a glowing BMW Mini? Wow, well, what a concept. <laughs> we should patent it. <laughs> and then we could sell it on eBay. <laughs> you know, I actually had this idea of creating a fluorescent dye for uh, surgery. So you know, let's say your doctor's opening up your heart and they should put some sort of dye that can bind to your organs and it'll glow so you can see the outlines of your organs so that the doctors don't like sniff the wrong part or something. Oh, that would make for a great Halloween. Especially if you want to have your organs hanging out, right? (laughs) While you're (laughs) trick-or-treating. Well, I have one organ that's already hanging out. (laughs) Normally normally doesn't glow, but... uh, That'd be a real burden. (laughs) Somehow it always uh, gets to that issue. I don't know why, I guess. But anyway, the... The burden. uh, Yes, the burden of shape-shifting synthetic molecules reported in this week's edition of the Journal of the American Chemical Society. Oh, jacks. Jacks. So what's your favorite hormone treatment? Uh, estrogen. Well, you might be on the right track, uh, especially well. if you're giving birth. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't had my period in about 30 years, so I guess I'm, <laughs> I'm probably due. 
Well, it turns out if you are going to have kids or you're going to be pregnant, having a hormone injection could actually help in preventing premature births. Okay. Obviously, the balance of hormones in pregnant women is very important, right? Especially uh, right. for the developing fetus. So. Right. And it turns out in the U.S., about one in eight children are actually born prematurely. Okay. So there could be a huge uh, opportunity to make an improvement there. Hmm. It turns out each year, I think about 10,000 premature births could be prevented through this method by regular uptakes of this hormone called 17P or 17-alpha hydroprogesterone caparate. It's good they make up easy to remember <laughs> names <laughs> for these. 17P. Yeah. I'm worried about P's 1 through 16. Hmm. <laughs> what happened to those? <laughs> yeah, maybe it was uh, rejected or something. Yeah. But by taking this weekly shot of the hormone, it turns out you can cut the premature births by up to a third. Well, that's uh, certainly good news, I guess, uh, for all the uh, pregnant women out there. Take your hormone treatments, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, you notice, I mean, I guess I'm at that age where like a lot of my uh, friends now seem to be pregnant. Well, even, even the guys? Well, <laughs> but you never year. know with hormone treatment. Right. Yeah. right. Well, this was very interesting stuff, and it was reported in the recent issue of Obstetrics and Gynecology, Volume 105. You know, that's almost as good as the Sexually Transmitted <laughs> Infections Journal. You sh- they should bundle those two as a set. Yeah, and uh, have a bathroom edition or something. (laughs) Power pack. And that's all for a look at current developments in the world of science and technology this week. This is Berkeley Grouch you're listening to here on 90.7 FM. In a few moments, Professor Patrick Michaels will join us to talk about his views on the issue of global warming. So stay tuned. While there is a general consensus within the scientific community that global warming is caused by anthropogenic means, there are, of course, many scientists who also feel that the uncertainty in these theories require a closer examination of the causes of global warming and the human impact. Uh, Well, joining us today is Professor Patrick Michaels, a professor at the University of Virginia and a senior fellow in environmental studies at the Cato Institute to talk about his concerns on these theories. Professor Michaels, thanks for joining us today on Berkeley Rocks. Hey, listen, if I got your introduction right, you're trying to say that Pat Michaels doesn't think the planet's warm or that human beings haven't caused a substantial portion of the warming of the last portion of the, of, of the 20th century, right? I have never written that, at least not within not within, not within memory. I, I guess what I mean is that you have different opinions and perhaps you would like to uh, explain them to No, you. I have an opinion that is based upon fact, or rather I will just merely give you facts 
and you can deal with them as you will uh-huh. about global warming. Number one fact is uh, you do have to understand that global warming is a, what I call an issue in public science, and public science issues compete with each other for your money, i.e. your taxpayer support for research and technology, etc. And we compete, global warming people compete with AIDS, we compete with the National Cancer Institute, all this good stuff. Nobody ever was successful in that competition by going to Washington and saying, my issue actually isn't that much of a problem or it might be overblown. You'll never get support that way. You have to paint issues in the direst and starkest of terms. And that's what happened. Uh, And then the political process rewards itself for having saved us from certain gloom and doom. I, I like to watch Californians being used for their for their naive greenness. There's a guy that's really using you right now, and you're just eating it up. His name is John McCain. Uh, the hearings he's been holding on global warming uh, are more one-sided than anything I ever saw in the Clinton and Gore administration. And if you want to know why he's doing it, I'll tell you. He's running for president, and he's running for president for the nomination for the presidency against Bill Frist, the majority leader of the Senate, possibly George Allen from Virginia, and or Rudy Giuliani from New York. Those people are going to lock up the South and the Northeast for convention delegates. He has to find a place to get delegates. The place he's looking is California. So that's why he's Mr. Green. You know, global warming is a terrible problem. I'm going to save you all. Because he knows that out there it's in the water, okay? All right. How about uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger? Uh, what about Arnold? I oh. mean, Arnold, Arnold, is, Arnold is kind of a green Republican. The only way you, the only way you can work with the California political scene is to be green. And, and I, 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 I forgot to mention the other aspect of global warming that you have to be aware of, which is, uh, judging from the introduction to this interview, you seem to have no critical insight into the issue whatsoever, uh, nor do most other people in the media. And so what they will do is they'll take all these gloom and doom pronouncements uh, and accept them uncritically. Just remember, the New York Times in 2000 had to, had to recant a story uh, on the melting of the area around the North Pole. Uh, and the New York Times could make a mistake like that. I assure you, Berkeley Grocks can do it. Well, I'm, I'm sure we have made mistakes, but uh, I guess we're looking at an overall trend that we're uh, examining here. Uh, well, first of all, maybe you could tell us what exactly is global warming in your own words. Well, and, the, the, what uh, everybody's concerned about is the, fact, is the fact that human beings burn a lot of fossil fuel, and in doing so, uh, they increase the carbon dioxide concentration in the atmosphere slightly. Uh, it's been suspected, I think, for about 130 years now that if you did enough of that, you should ultimately see a signature in the surface temperature of the planet, uh, and uh, that signature would re- reveal itself as an inordinate warming of very cold and dry air more than anything else. And indeed, if you look in the last half of the 20th century, if you map the temperature changes around the globe, you'll see that the largest warming is in the winter, and it's in Siberia, which is very, very dry, and in northwestern North America, which is very, very dry. That's where we have enough records to actually make reasonable statements about this. Mm -hmm. So you have a human-induced greenhouse warming. And now, wait a minute, I'm going to tell you three words that's going to some of your listeners are going to, are going to throw, the radio, throw the radio away, some are going to go to another station, and some are actually going to say, wait, I want to hear more. Three words are, get over it. You can't stop it. It's not that large. Once, here, here's why I say get over it, because we have built, the scientific community has built a jillion computer models to study how the temperature of the atmosphere should change as carbon dioxide increases. And there have been what I would call mega-studies of these models, meta-analyses, if you will. Uh, And what you see is that the central tendency for these models is this. Once warming starts, not long after it starts, it takes place at a constant rate, not an ever-increasing rate. And we know that these cold, dry air masses have shown this signature warming for decades. And so, therefore, you know the rate of warming for the future, don't you? Mm -hmm. Because the central tendency of the models is once it starts and establishes itself, it's constant. It's 
not an exponential increase. It's not a runaway greenhouse effect. That's impossible on this planet. I'll be happy to tell you why. Um, but no, it, it works out to about 1.5 to 1.7 degrees Celsius per half century. Big deal. Get over it, okay? You, uh, I'm sorry, I gave you the wrong number. <laughs> 0.75 to 0.85 degrees Celsius per half century, 1.5 to 1.7 per century. Now, in the course of the last century, the last 100 years, we also had a 0.75 degree warming. That's the same amount we're expecting in the next 50 years. What happened? Well, let's, let's examine what happened with that three-quarters of a degree warming. Let's look at the United States. Lifespan doubled. Life expectancy doubled. Uh, our main crop corn, the crop yields quintupled. That's, that's, they went up 500%. Uh, and wealth got spread throughout the population. Global warming only had a partial cause of one of those, the increase in corn yields. But it sure as heck didn't stop the other. And if you think that a warming of similar magnitude spread over half the time is going to all of a sudden reverse all that progress and all that technology, you're hopelessly naive. We will just continue to go on and adapt as we have. All right, so you mentioned that, uh, that you feel that it's impossible for global warming to suddenly become an exponential effect. Uh, one of the concerns is the uh, thermohaline current um, over the uh, North America and the European areas. You you're watching movies. You're not looking at reality. Changes, changes in salinity are very, very slight. Uh, and uh, uh, I will offer you uh, a peek at the recent scientific literature. Perhaps you are trying to tell me, that, of course, that global warming is going to cause an ice age. Well, well if, you actually re if you actually read the scientific literature instead of looking at that silly movie, The Day After Tomorrow, <laughs> uh, you might see uh, the Quaternary Science Review paper that just came out by Bill Ruderman, who is like big name in, in, in paleoclimate, you know what it says? It says that because of the development of civilization and the emission of uh, the deforestation of Europe that occurred several thousand years ago, that human activity prevented the Earth from lapsing back into an ice age. In other words, Rudman argues that we would already be halfway back to the next ice age if it weren't for human beings influencing the climate. What do you think of that? There could be some point to that. Well, that's not quite exactly what I have heard coming out of the radio. I, I saw not one piece of coverage of that story. That guy was the, the department chairman here at UVA, and this is a pretty prestigious Department of Environmental Sciences. Uh, he's on all kinds of big panels. And why did people avoid this story? Because it would make them look bad, wouldn't it? All right, so let's just look at some of the evidences that uh, scientists over the years have presented um, in argument that humans are responsible for global warming. Um, Carbon dioxide is going up in the atmosphere. Right. Carbon so dioxide absorbs infrared radiation. It should preferentially warm uh, cold, dry air. And, by the way, uh, in a greenhouse change, you also see a drop in stratospheric temperature, not a rise. Uh, that's just the way the greenhouse effect works. And, indeed, you do see drops in stratospheric temperature concurrent with the warming of the dry, warm, the dry cold surface air. Uh, so, as far as I'm concerned, that's over. And, like I said, get over it, because you now know how much it's going to warm in the future, unless the central tendency of those billions of dollars' worth of climate models is wrong, uh, and uh, you can't do anything about it. What do, you, what, do you what do you propose to do to stop this, sir? I'd like to hear your proposal. Well, I mean, before we have a solution, I think we should have a consensus whether, um, whether humans really are Of course responsible. they are. I just, I just told you why. I mean, right. how, how much further do we have to go? Okay, but to what extent can the damage... Be what damage? Well, so How do you know there's a net damage? <laughs> so there is a well-known uh, graph that's going around that shows a strong correlation between CO2 concentration and the average temperature of the planet uh, over think, the last I think, couple I think we've years. just established that over the last 10 minutes, haven't we? 
Right, but then in the last 100 years, there's been a 30% rise in CO2 concentrations, a very sharp spike um, in comparison to the natural geological records we have for the last 2,000 years. And I wish you, I wish, I dearly wish you had been, uh, you'd be a little bit more current with the scientific literature. Take a look at Rodman's paper, where he argues that the background concentration would actually be closer to 245 parts per million rather than 280 that is normally assumed and that at that concentration, we would be about two degrees colder, C, globally, and we would be on our way to an ice age. So uh, what are you complaining about? Well, do we know what causes an ice age? No. But is that evidence to suggest that we had prevented one? We know what temperature the Earth has to be to cause uh, to, to be in an ice age. We don't know why the Earth's temperature fluctuates uh, as much as it has. I have my theories. I'll be happy to give you mine. Uh, it has to do with the... the very peculiar distribution of continents and mountains that has evolved over, say, the last uh, uh, 30 million years or so that allows for much more mixing of uh, air from the poles with air from the tropics over land, over land surfaces. So the temperature contrasts that you see are much greater than they may have been uh, over much of, of, of prehistory. Uh, and that predisposes continents to getting pretty white in the winter, which means that the Earth's reflectivity is becomes very, very dynamic, and it's possible to get into a negative feedback loop where you can make it whiter and whiter and whiter and whiter until you have an ice age. So, what is the problem? I mean, what's wrong with the media these days? Well, I think I think I just accused you of not being current with the literature, not being very critical, and um, it's not just it's not it's not it's everywhere. Okay, it's the New York Times has got real problems with this issue. The Washington Post has got real problems with this issue. Very serious problems with their reporting on it. Uh, they uh, um, they don't seem to, you know, in, in college we're taught to look at context of things. They, they totally ignore the context uh, of the issue of climate change and how it must of necessity be mired in the political process. A, because it costs a lot of money to do this work, and B, because it entails a lot of people thinking of, up a lot of policies, which means there's a lot of power at stake. Anybody who thinks this issue is functioning in a value-free environment is hopelessly naive. Well, let's talk about energy. There is, of course, a strong correlation between CO2 concentration and the burning of fossil fuels Absolutely. and our consumption of energy. Um, Absolutely. And, of course, at some point, oil will run out. Have you ever heard of something called supply and demand? I mean, I think your argument would also be that diamonds will run out, too. Uh, it takes a long time because the price gets higher as the supply gets lower or else new new sources are exploited. There's a very large amount of oil available in the tar sands in Alberta and Canada towards what's underneath Saudi Arabia. And at $50 a barrel for oil, it becomes economically feasible to exploit that stuff. Uh, we have, I mean, it's not just oil. Fossil fuels are, in many ways, quite interconvertible. If you wanted to, you could take coal and turn it into a, a product liquefied product that could run an automobile. We have hundreds and hundreds of years worth of coal at increase at ever increasing consumption rates. There's just huge amounts of it. Most of it by the way happens to be in the United States. Uh, so no, it's we're not going to run out of fossil fuels. What we will do though is we will grad or we will change our technologies over the course of say say a century dramatically. And in ways that you write have no idea uh, that they will change. I would like you to think about 100 years ago today and compare that to the technologies of today. Well, you know, in 1905, people would say, what's a computer? I don't know if everybody's going to buy one of these automobiles. Uh, what's an Internet? Uh, what's AIDS? Come on. The world changes dramatically technologically in 100 years. And, and for us to just assume, you and I, to assume 
that we'll be burning fossil fuel in automobiles, etc., uh, as our main source of transportation, and we'll be burning it in power plants as our main source of energy. It's just completely out of line with the changes that take place over the course of a century. I mean, you can worry about this all you want if you really need something to worry about. If that makes you feel good. But uh, I, will, I will argue that our technologies of 100 years from now will be so different from today and that uh, you and I probably won't recognize them. Mm-hmm. Well, what do you propose we should investment in terms of developing new technologies for the future? You can invest in whatever you want. That's my point. You know, there are, there, are, there are all kinds of technologies out there. Some will catch on, some will fail. I would argue vociferously against solar energy, for example. It's a, it's a monumental, decades-long failure. Uh, I will argue that uh, uh, against massive wind farms, and I'll take you out to Altamont Pass if you want to see something really ugly. But I will also argue that we don't know what's coming. I mean, it, it could be a fuel cell technology. It could be hydrogen-based. I don't know. But you can invest and I can invest in the technologies of our choice. And eventually, you know, there's going to be winners and losers. And somebody's going to, going to hit on technologies that are, are positive. I have substantial investments in two car companies, Toyota and Honda, because they're both very, very forward-looking in their technologies. And so I, I, you know, I put my money where, where my ideas are. And I would not have that money to invest if the government took it away from me in, a, in an attempt to tax energy so much to stop global warming, would I? And you have to make energy so expensive. If you want to really dramatically reduce carbon dioxide, you have to make energy so expensive that people can't afford it. You like that? Well, the Europeans seem to be doing pretty well with yeah, that. Yeah, they got 10% structural unemployment. They're real happy, aren't they? <laughs> you like that? You want that in this country? All right, well, I guess we are running a little bit out of time, and it's certainly uh, been enlightening to have a difference of opinions here. Uh, are there any last words you'd like to add about yourself, your book, or uh, your oh, Yeah, research? I have a nice book out on this called Meltdown, and the subtitle says it all, The, the Predictable Distortion of global warming by scientists, politicians, and the media. It's been the best-selling book under global warming at Amazon for some time, and I suspect it will be for some time in the future. Uh, you might want to check it out, uh, because uh, you wouldn't get barbecued in arguments like this anymore if you read it. Great. Well, thank you very much for joining us on okay. Berkeley Rocks today. Bye. And we were just talking to Professor Patrick Michaels on his views on global warming and his book, Meltdown. Meltdown is now available online at Amazon.com, so check it out. This is Berkeley Grosh you're listening to here on 90.7 FM KALX. In a few moments, find out how hair becomes curly, so stay tuned. Right, now here's Dr. Einstein with the answer to last week's question of the week. <laughs> yeah, also it's very great, so thank you very much, Steph. Like, it's a great thing to be on this program. You know, I love the Berkeley Gox. It's the greatest show ever. Yeah, also, you know, here in Germany, we have this kind of strange environment where the hair goes all curly. Look at my hair, so frizzy, yeah? But my question is, why is the hair so frizzy and curly? Well, the interesting thing is that there's these little disulfide bonds on the hair. And the disulfide bond links the hair together and causes it to curl up. And that's the greatest thing, that's why I don't have to, you know, condition my hair anymore. And that's why hair's curly. I cannot wait to tell my wife about this next time I run my fingers through her hair. 
darling. Your hair, so sexy. All those disulfide bonds. Oh, wow. You're welcome to uh, rub your hair through my hair. (laughs) (laughs) You're sexy beast. You're crazy. (laughs) Woof. Hmm, and Yoda here with this week's question of the week. Mysterious and cold this puzzle is. The force can move many things, except when it's frozen. The melting point it is not, but the freezing point it is. Hmm, what is the difference? If you know the answer, or think you know the answer, email us at groks at hotmail.com. You won't win anything, but you might just not freeze your butt. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Groks. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. So if you'd like to contact us, email us at groks at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Groks, I'm Michael Fitzhugh. And I'm Frank Ling. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also stay tuned for more music with your host, Therese. <laughs>